sushi, tempura, and the surprising basements where you can get amazing food. This week, we're in Tokyo, Japan. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we travel to a different foodie city and explore all the drinks and dishes that make that place unique. This week, we'll have something called Curry Pan. Learn about train station cuisine. Spoiler alert, it's fantastic. And of course, take a deep dive into sake in Tokyo, Japan. But first, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get every episode each Friday. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, they all have it. So does RadioMisfits.com. So subscribe to Destination Eat Drink today. Culinary Backstreets is one of my favorite travel and food websites, and they also do food tours. So I asked Tokyo food tour guide Mari Wallace from Culinary Backstreets to be on the show. And she said, sure, but she wanted to have Phoebe Amoroso, another guide from Culinary Backstreets, join her. So I said, sure, let's have both of you on. Mari's from New Zealand, Phoebe from the UK, and they're both Lots and lots of fun, as you're going to hear. Phoebe's the first person talking, then Mari, so you'll know who you're listening to. So let's eat in Tokyo, Japan. Destination, eat, drink. Mari and Phoebe, thank you for being here on Destination, Eat, Drink. Japan is such a big country with so many different regions. And when we talk about Tokyo, we're in the Kanto region. How would you describe the food of the Kantao region? That is quite a difficult thing to answer because there is, there's only about one dish that's classed as the kind of Tokyo local food that I can personally think of. I'm sure there are more, but um, Tokyo food has kind of spread countrywide. So it's, it's quite hard to kind of pin down something specific about Tokyo, particularly as it being quite an international city, at least the most in Japan. When you think about comparing it, elsewhere maybe not such a range of cuisines just purely because the population is not as cosmopolitan so so what i'm taking from this is we've got a city that's very international in flavor maybe a comparison might be new york in the united states or london in the uk what are some of the different influences that we see in tokyo actually i would say it's actually far less international than new york or london because japan is not um, a country that's been so open to immigration right right they are changing their approach purely because there is um japan is i think depending on which which statistics you use the second um sort of fastest aging population in the, in the world. Like they really have a very steep aging population. Um, it's declining very, very sharply, particularly the working population is a big worry. If you walk around any street here in the city, you'll see, if you can read Japanese, you'll see a sign saying we're looking for stuff, every cafe, every shop. Um, so they are needing to recruit people from overseas. So that has changed a bit of, that has caused a bit of a sea change. And I've noticed like in my neighborhood, for example, um, for some particular reason, all the convenience stores seem to now have Nepalese staff, yes. which is a, a growing thing oh. that there's been this influx of Nepalese people because they've had a, a visa uh, agreement with them that there's now actually like a Nepalese school uh, that's, you know, so there's quite a, a huge growing population of, you know, Nepalese, which of course has now brought in a whole lot of uh, the Nepalese uh, food and so you're actually seeing a lot of Nepalese Nepalese curry places and whatnot um, and that's that's been an interesting you know growth. There's also like a little Myanmar area. There's um, a huge they've Korean been recruiting from Vietnam, Vietnam. A lot recently actually yeah yeah. So you know you you see that sort of it, it is changing but it's been quite a recent change. I mean when I first came here a long time ago, um, <laughs> you know there was there was uh, the French restaurants and Italian restaurants, and that was about it, and then the odd occasional kind of restaurant. But now you do actually get a lot more restaurants, and you do find people that – Japanese people who have also gone overseas somewhere liked that or, or gone, you know, to, to learn that cuisine and then come back and opened, 
restaurants. I mean, there's a, a New Zealand restaurant opened by a couple who lived in New Zealand for a couple of years. There's, mm. In my neighbourhood, there's a couple of uh, Portuguese restaurants mm. run oh, cool. by Japanese people. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, in, in in that sense, I would say that several of the restaurants that serve, you know, international cuisine, cuisine that's not Japanese are run by Japanese people who've either been overseas or just purely have a passion for that area. I think that's interesting, though, because a lot of times when you have that influence, say you've got Japanese folks making Portuguese cuisine, you end up with the most interesting and exciting flavors that you could imagine because they're not as constrained to it as a maybe a Portuguese person would yeah. be. Plus, they get to use the ingredients they have right there in Japan. Yes, yeah, and that can that can they can make some very good things. Uh, like, yeah, some there's some excellent restaurants around. I mean, two things on that point. Firstly, um, tempura itself was derived from I believe Portugal. Um, yeah, in the Portugal, 1500s, yes. 1500s, and that's become an entire Japanese cuisine in itself, and ranging from you know 500 yen bowl of fast food to um, I once interviewed a man who has measured the distance of his counter and from the cooker the fryer to the counter to serving the plates in order to time everything absolutely <laughs> by the That is so Japanese. So Japanese. You get the <laughs> level of so Japanese. What's called, uh, yeah, a word called kodawari, which, I mean, it's, it doesn't have a direct translation in English, but it's kind of an obsessive level of perfectionism or kind of attention to detail or putting it all into something. I recently wrote a piece on cheese in Japan and according to people in the industry there's about 300 artisanal workshops or kobo in Japanese that have popped up across the country and of course Japan doesn't necessarily have well doesn't particularly have a you know a history of um, dairy consumption although the children in elementary schools still go through that milk program where they drink oh, milk god yeah yeah i remember <laughs> i was i think one of the last years in the uk of the kind of forced milk consumption at school um yeah. um it's the only time i ever believe i drank a glass of milk but anyhow you can actually get glasses of milk as on the menu in actually old-fashioned coffee shops here which goes to show just how ingrained it is in your you know the sort of taste and the upbringing but um in terms of cheese, uh, Italy or France, there's a huge amount of history and a huge amount of pride in terms of cheese production and what is acceptable and what classes as cheese. But in Japan, cheese making is a rather new. And there's, there, I could go on for a long time as to why, you know, it's actually relatively small scale, why it's taking off. But the point is they're not constrained by this concept of tradition, which would con maybe constrain other areas of um, Japan, because Japan is a country that is... I think, does look back on its culture, does look back on its traditions. And and Phoebe's article, what she wrote, what, I mean, there were some interesting combinations of the things that they were putting into the cheese, wasn't it? Like, oh, God, what, what were well, there? There was, oh, there was a couple of things that were amazing. It was So, for example, sake. you know, brushing it with sake. Or also, yeah. um, oh, there's an wow. amazing woman who lives in, um, she's actually, it's still classed as Tokyo. Chiba. In the northwest, no, 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 oh, no, not not, not the Chiba one. Yeah. In, in, oh, there's an amazing woman in Chiba as well. Yes. She's very famous. She's got the media coverage. Mm. But I um, sought out a slightly lesser known um, lady, um, and she um, actually calls it fromage de terroir. And she was just interested to know how sort of the you know, the dairy industry works in France. So she taught herself French for a couple of years, and then went to. Um, a school to learn about dairy and dairy produce in French in France, this lady. I have so much respect for her, Sylvie Missan. And uh, we only spoke briefly on the phone, actually. I'm meaning to go and visit her store. It's, it's going to take about an hour, an hour and a half, but it still counts as sort of Tokyo prefecture. And she's using, there's a local, there is a sake brewery in Western Tokyo out in the um, Okutama area. Oh, the Salonoi Brewery. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. They started following me on Instagram. Okay. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like a celebrity. No. Um, but, um, <laughs> anyway, um, they are pretty sake, but there's also actually around that area, there is a winery. There is Tokyo Winery, which I didn't know about. And she's, you know, using the sort of crushed grapes to flavor the cheese. But um, um, I spoke to an American lady called Mallory. And she's um, she was based in Japan. Now she's based internationally, but she's working to set up the first kind of cheese tours in Japan this year, and to be the first person to actually export Japanese artisanal cheese 
to the States, I think, I believe in March, we need to touch base. And she kind of um, explained a system in which, well, her concept of how can cheese be truly Japanese? I think this is just a really interesting approach of, you know, how do you conceive of something being from somewhere? You know, she said, is it a case that, you know, it's just made in Japan? Well, that's not really enough. But, you know, does it use, for example, um, some people are using um, their own um, yeast cultures and that's using sort of uh, yeast from the from the air and the surroundings. And that has an impact on the cheese. Sure. You give it a um, a name that uh, reflects, um, for example, there's a Hokkaido producer that uses local, I think, bird names that are only found in that area of Japan to name his cheese after those birds. I mean, which is even by the naming. But there's also things in terms of, um, you know, yusake or wine or the um, certain kind of uh, um, one that's even flavoured with ash, one that's even got like a made to look like Mount Fuji, one that's kind of um, um, got a sakura wrapped in a sakura leaf, like sakura mochi to kind of uh, infuse it with a slight sort of cherry blossom leaf flavor so there are uh, different ways in which cheese can be japanese uh, i've actually japanized japanized <laughs> oh that sounds good um as phoebe mentioned before the tempura came from originally came from uh portugal in the 1500s and the portuguese actually introduced quite a lot of like really great things to japan uh Coffee, gunpowder, tobacco, deep frying, Catholic religion. <laughs> they wanted to give a broad range. Yeah. But, you know, as, as I say, they, uh, the, the Japanese, like, took the deep frying and they, they changed it and they, they you know, made the, the batter an awful lot thinner than the Portuguese version uh, and made it a lot, you know, and then turned it into what we know as tempura, which, you know, has become a very Japanese thing. It's quite fascinating because you can track the history of flour milling technology through looking at ukiyo-e woodblock prints in terms of how the tempura is printed. Oh, you're looking at me like... <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at her like... She's like such a classic Phoebe. She's, she gets very geeky about things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, this is super, super geeky, yeah. Really geeky. <laughs> you can keep going. <laughs> Tempura to me seems, uh, of course, is very Japanese. Seems to me to be more of like a, a street food thing. Is there specific no, places? No, where... no, no, oh, no, no. Actually, very high end at times. Yeah. Um, I mean, oh god, I've had some really high end tempura where they they pick like the live prawns out and dip it into the batter and put it in. And you have to eat the prawn head. Uh, yeah. So the the man yeah. I mentioned yeah. earlier, who um, it's good. It's okay. It's crispy. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, like um, you really. Tell, tell me um, a place where we would go and get some uh, high-end tempura like this. This is not a high-end store because, in general, I believe tempura, it's kind of what you get as a lunch set. It's kind of comforting. It's things that people make at home. Or it's the kind of thing you go into the countryside and you do a hike and you go to a a place that does soba buckwheat noodles and they have uh, that's all cold and a dipping sauce when you have hot tempura with maybe mountain vegetables this April the snow is starting to thaw and they harvest a lot of mountain vegetables which is an incredible part of Japanese cuisine and those will be put in tempura but in terms of something I think that is very accessible very good and it's quite a famous store here in Tokyo it's called Kaneko Hanosuke the uh, the Honten sorry the main store is in Nihonbashi I believe they have two or three other branches in slightly different formats as well maybe not exactly the same menu and they do uh, what's called a tendon so that's a tempura um, donburi so a tempura rice bowl with a secret sauce and they're not changed for decades <laughs> everybody um, has a secret sauce in this country yeah <laughs> their, their secret sauce once the recipe is set the recipe yeah. is set <laughs> it's like 100 um, years later they're still using the same uh, recipe <laughs> but the, this right. tempura, this tendon is only about a thousand yen so ten dollars you have a giant piece of sea eel you have some vegetables on it this sauce that is kind of what you call it, amakara is kind of like sweet savory it's got that right umami balance to it and then they also have which is, i think is particularly great is a tempura egg that is still runny in the middle i have and, never had a tempura egg oh, oh i love tempura <laughs> egg so there you go so that's just to kind of give some kind of visual image for any <laughs> listeners that place is great um but you you have to if you go at a peak time you will be you will need to queue Let's talk sushi because I think uh, of, of the one thing that all Americans know about is sushi. So yeah. is sushi appreciably different in Japan? And oh, yes. <laughs> so, so tell me more. Well, it's just, it actually tastes good here. <laughs> I've never had it. 
It's good anywhere else. <laughs> well, I actually never ate sushi in the UK, so. Oh, I, I, I've eaten it in a number of cities. But like, I wouldn't want to eat it in the UK. <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't want to. I, I actually have eaten it in the UK. I've eaten it in France. I've eaten it in Spain. I've eaten it in Vietnam. I've eaten it in New Zealand. I've eaten it all over the place. And, oh, I don't know why I keep trying to eat it in other countries. <laughs> yeah, why do you? I don't know. I kind of get like, when, you know when you go on a holiday and, and after a little while you just think, oh, I need something Japanese. And, and the unfortunate <laughs> thing is that a lot of the times overseas the only thing they have are these kind of mixed restaurants which we don't really have here so like you go into a restaurant and so I was in Madrid and they have a bit of tempura a bit of sushi a bit of this and a bit of that well we don't do that here you go to a sushi place you get sushi you go to a tempura place you get tempura each place kind of specializes in their one thing but overseas they kind of they kind of just like throw it all in together and and nobody's really specialized in making that particular thing and so it just doesn't really taste that great often so what, plus the rice quality that's something that i never thought i would understand moving to japan with the plain bowl of white rice oh. to understand the different flavors that rice has and the, the how they get very particular about the kind of rice so that is obviously very important but in terms of not wanting to i mean i personally can't speak for experience because i've never really eaten sushi outside of japan i probably wouldn't want to no <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not wanting to kind of disparage it worldwide and i believe there are oh there are some good ones oh, yeah, good uh, yeah ones. i will yeah i will take that uh, back. there are some good ones when the you know but the, i mean yeah the, I mean, if it's like just a, you know, it's gonna be yeah better here you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but not wanting to like disparage, you know, local variations because I having just said that Japan takes um, inspirations from overseas and makes it Japanese. Yes, I don't believe that we should be um, snobbish in any way about Japanese food You're if right. there's going to be. And I find that's actually on both sides on from people uh, people from overseas living here in Japan, also Japanese, it seems to be like, well, that's not the pure food, blah blah. But uh, Japanese food is always evolving, and so if it works for the local markets, whatever they're doing by all means. But to kind of put it in context in terms of what you might expect from sushi here in Japan. So the idea of the sort of Californian roll and, for example, salmon being a really common topping for sushi, that's just really not the case. <laughs> and you're not going to get avocado or mayonnaise particularly. No. <laughs> um, there was, I think, even a, a Californian style sushi place that opened in the past few months, which some Americans are very, very excited about. But um <laughs> Having taken people for sushi, they're often like, oh, yeah, can I get the salmon and the avocado? And I'm oh, sort of- I've had, I had friends come from New Zealand that said, could I have the lemon chicken and teriyaki chicken? And I said, we don't do that here. <laughs> oh, God, that's amazing. Not even fish. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was like, lemon chicken and teriyaki chicken. And I said, I can't even ask the sushi I chef. I mean. Like, like, I can't even say that. they will throw us out. Oh, my God. Excuse me. Can I have something that is not from the sea? <laughs> I know. <laughs> It's like it's like going to Naples and saying, "Can I have pineapple on my pizza, please?" Yeah, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, exactly. I mean, have, although if imagine they do serve chicken sashimi here, raw chicken is a thing, but not in sushi. Not in sushi places. places. Just to let you yeah. know. Yeah, but I mean, like the sushi here is. I mean, I think the rice is just so amazing like and, oh. and it's special japanese rice is special for sushi you know and it, it just it, um they it say works. the yeah. way they you know make it traditionally when they put it in that kind of wooden the wooden yeah, tub the big, yeah. and they fan it and the right proportion of vinegar in it and sugar lots of famous sushi chefs say that the rice is more important yes. than the fish yes wow. yeah. so that just gives you an idea of you and know, just and how important that, rice is here. And rice is actually very expensive to buy in Japan. Uh, Subsidies. You, yeah. But, you know, if you're going to, like, if you you know, if you go to another country, rice is like a, a very cheap type of um, produce, but it's not here. And it really is actually really good. So when you go overseas, people aren't really going to go and buy Japanese rice, I think, to make it. So that's the problem. I know from, I'm just saying, uh, like, you know, where I come from in New Zealand, the, the rice just, it, it, they're not using Japanese rice for the sushi. Mari, what, what's your favorite sushi place to go to in Tokyo? When when you want to go out and enjoy some sushi, where do you go? I often go to the one that we go on on our walk on Culinary Back Streets, which is just a really little small place, you know, that only seats about sort of 10 people. But they, they're a huge wholesale company that uh, goes to the fish markets every morning and buys a whole lot of fish to supply for food halls and supermarkets. And they have managed to have this little, small little sushi restaurant tucked away in a corner in a basement that has amazing sushi for a really quite reasonable price. Um, their scallop is exceptional. Oh, their scallop is really exceptional. 
and so is their anago, which is a sea eel, a conga eel. Yeah, just because of the, I, I think it's that they're buying every day in a large quantity, so they're they're turning over their their produce incredibly quickly because they are supplying it to department stores and supermarkets and things. It's just so incredibly fresh, and it just melts in your mouth. And I, you know, I love that sort of that kind of sushi that just, yeah. I know I can eat, I, you know, as often as I do that tour, I can sit down and eat the whole damn thing and be really happy to eat it. <laughs> oh, it's good. It's, it's really, just really, really good. good. <laughs> it's really good. Mari, you mentioned department stores, and I'd, I'd like both of you to comment on this because when I was researching this, I found out that department store food halls are a big thing, and it's something that is so foreign to us. Talk about the uh, Depachika. Depachika. I, I mean, in, in probably in any other country apart from, you know, the odd few places, you, you'd never think to go down into a department store's food hall, you know, which I mean, it might sort of, you know, be equivalent to like one of your, your malls or something to get really great food, but you get amazing food down there. Yeah. I mean, uh, going the, down into the basement of a department store, that's the start of a horror movie, not of a great dining experience. <laughs> no, 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 no. You got it wrong. I mean, it sounds like you might be entering hell, but we like to call it a food heaven or a food paradise. And if I'm feeling sad, I just walk through one just to make myself feel happier. I wish I were joking, but it is true. It is what I call a food paradise, and that's how I introduce it to anyone coming to Japan. It is something that you absolutely must visit. And I, I had a, a, a guest come on the tour once, and she called it a food museum <laughs> wow. oh goodness um and you that you think you know you think oh this is a big um depachika and then you go to an even bigger yeah, one. bigger one yeah oh yeah so, i mean there's a range you know that some some of them are just so amazing and so beautiful and gorgeous and you know the high class ones some are just more, you know a bit more sort of like approachable and whatnot but they now I mean, they started in 1936 in, in nagoya one of the department stores down there they wanted to bring you know they were, they were kind of trying to think about sanitation back then and bring things uh like markets indoors a little bit and they'd always had like uh, restaurant floors up on the top of department stores with you know windows and whatnot. But they thought if they put like the department, if they put the the market kind of thing up on the top floors, it was going to take an awful lot to get their uh, gas and electricity and water and whatnot up there. So they put it into the into the basement, and then basically everybody else kind of followed suit. And now every single department store has a basement full of food food paradise down in the basement and yeah so it's kind of there's kind of different areas some will have a sort of supermarket area that tends to be quite high-end produce it depends on the department store then this is a delicatessen which is where you've got all kinds of things from you know i mean salads that the salads that are amazing <laughs> i mean you, you like salad mountains you kind of want to climb <laughs> it's just incredible um you know, fried chicken, yakitori, that's chicken, grilled chicken on sticks. You have like pickles. fish, pickles. I mean, all these incredible amount of, uh, yeah, delicatessen items. Also, um, Western style foods, you can get kind of a hamburger and a tomato sauce, kind of like, I say hamburger, it's more like a, you know, a beef mince patty rather than that you could take, basically you can then just put to your, you know, put towards your dinner without having to do much cooking. Yeah. Um, but then you also have the kind of high-end cake area, oh, oh, cakes yes. and sweets, and gift-giving is a hugely important part in of Japanese culture. As as Phoebe was saying just before, you know, they'll go somewhere and they'll study, like the, the woman who learned French to go and study about cheese, they will go somewhere and actually, like, study you would not believe and then come back. And honestly, they make some of the best croissants I've ever had, you know, and it's wow. like... Yeah, their croissants are amazing here. Oh, they yeah, their their croissants are quite quite exceptional, exceptional aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you have to know which bakeries to go to, but in general, they do a pretty good job. They do, sure. yeah. What's the best French Japanese bakery in Tokyo? Oh, oh a lot of them. I got very sad because my favorite one closed. Oh no, <laughs> those are sad I mean, days, right? <laughs> It was called Gontran Cherrier, and I don't know if it was actually, I think it might have been originally come from France, but they had a whole range. That's been um, replaced by Boulange, which has a very, very similar lineup, um, but 
isn't quite as good, but there's still their ham, like sort of um, like it's like a croque monsieur uh, croissant is incredible they also do like in spring like a seasonal spring vegetable version of it however what um i really really enjoy is uh jean robuchon i'm not a big fan of his restaurants um i know they're supposed to be michelin style whatever worldwide um not a fan i went to one of his restaurants here and one in london but the bakery here is in incredible it's you know slightly above other bakery prices Mm. but i mean still it's bread it's um affordable and there are some for example they have this kind of apple cinnamon croissant with actual crisp apple in it at a certain time of year but they also do kind of jap things that are popular in japan something that i adore is called kare pan oh yes oh, kare pan oh yes, I, I have another one <laughs> sorry we're, we're gonna we mary and i can talk for ages so just to let you know <laughs> that we can carry on talking but i need to tell you the story of kare pan because yes. no one knows about kare pan and Please. people your listeners need to know. <laughs> they do. Everybody needs to. Everybody needs to experience curry pan. <laughs> curry pan is the best. Okay, so pan is the obviously the word for bread because in in Japanese when they don't have a word they borrow it from a, a foreign language. So we have pan as bread, and then curry as in curry, and it is essentially a deep fried savory donut. Imagine kind of like a donut bun okay. that is stuffed with a curry. Now Japanese curry. Um, I haven't researched the history in too much detail, but it originally came from kind of English curry, which was inspired by Indian curry. And it's kind of, it's Japanese curry is very, very sweet. The spices doesn't go down well here. It's mainly, mainly sweet. However, there are many different kinds of curry fillings that you'll find in a curry pan. And it really depends on the store, sometimes even on the day, on the kind of style of um, curry pan you might find. Some curry pan is just kind of normal um, bread, kind of a bread roll. Don't get that kind. You need the deep fried donut yeah. for sure. <laughs> the deep fried. <laughs> and, um, Can't go wrong. So the curry pan dough tends to be slightly sweet, which can go really well with the curry inside. Mm. And, um, you know, different places, different quality. But it sounds like a very, very odd item. To the point where I was hiking in the south of Japan with my mom. Her first time she came to Japan, she never went to Tokyo. And nowhere is it open. We're in the town in the middle of nowhere. Only the supermarket has a supermarket bakery. And the last thing she wants is a curry pan. And I've got two. <laughs> and she's throwing a bit of tantrum about her breakfast is going to be a, what, a curry donut. Am I, <laughs> am I joking? We're going to go on a hike and all I've got is a curry donut. And she's like, I don't think I'm going to eat this. I need to, I'm going to need to get something else, even if it's, you know, like some new nuts to snack on whilst hiking. Because I just, you know, no, no. And she takes one bite and she's like, why have we not bought three of these? <laughs> we not bought three. And so actually every time if I post on social media a picture of curry pan, I get this kind of like a message row of hearts from my mother, <laughs> which uh, just, you, this is something that people need to know about and need to try. And it, uh, when it catches on abroad, I just love to see how it develops because uh, oh yes, it will. It's going to appeal to such a wide range of tastes. It's incredible. Everybody I've ever introduced to curry pan loves it. They just love it, and the, you know, there's all sorts of different flavors. As as Phoebe was saying, you know, you get. I, I even had like um, spinach curry the other day from the one in Shibuya. That's really good. <laughs> up by Bunkamura, it's very nice. Yes, Bunkamura. Yes, oh, so like, oh, she's right. Well, this is one there. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Yeah. We have something. <laughs> take care of we have to go find them. put this on hold we've got a curry yeah. pan crisis oh, we, gotta go out. we gotta go and get our curry pan <laughs> i mean it is actually 10 p.m at night so i oh, think we were about curry pan. yeah yeah you know like wandering around the streets aimlessly calling <laughs> for it this is another wonderful thing that's in japan which a lot of people have actually heard of and that's the egg sandwiches oh my god and and you know I used to sit there and I used to think, okay, I'm a quite healthy eater and I don't really eat this white bread that they have in Japan and it's kind of fluffy and it's it's a little bit weird. And then they have these egg sandwiches that are kind of like this mixed up egg with mayonnaise with white bread and they've cut off the cut off the crusts and Phoebe's like shaking her head going, no, she doesn't like them. She doesn't appreciate them. <laughs> I mean, I have but a couple. I love them. I absolutely love them. And I, I, I used to think to myself, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. And then Anthony Bourdain said that it was one of his favorite things in Japan. And then I felt validated. I felt like I could eat <laughs> the egg sandwiches. <laughs> you are cooler than me, Mary. <laughs> 
<laughs> She'll keep on with her curry pan and I will sit there with my egg sandwich. <laughs> and together we've got a whole picnic. <laughs> right. So the Eki ban is, is just, explain to me this because... Um, my understanding is it's it's food that you get at the train station. And this is another thing. Like, we don't go to department stores to get food. Train station is a last resort food option. Maybe airport food is one <laughs> yeah, below that. But in, in North America, you do not yeah. go to the train station to eat. No. In the UK, you would rather starve. <laughs> I mean, personally. I have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page there, Brad. <laughs> well, in New Zealand, we don't even have many train stations. So. What's a train? <laughs> yeah, what's a train? I don't right. know what that is. Oh, man. When I was in New Zealand, I'll tell you right now. When I was in New Zealand, I'm like, what, we can't take a train from here to there? Nope. <laughs> Give it <laughs> up. So but hang on. You're supposed to be used to driving. You're, you're, I, I, you're American, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. So I, yeah, we needed to drive, but... You know, we didn't. <laughs> we just we were in the city center. We were in cities mostly, so we took public transport in in New Zealand. Or there we, isn't any. What are you talking about? <laughs> or we met. Or we met friends. <laughs> we made. You made friends. We made exactly. new friends. Go to the pub, find a friend, and, and find a. Oh yeah, go to the pub, find a friend. Then it is public transport. <laughs> <laughs> that's New Zealand public transport. That is brilliant. Yeah, I love right. it. So yes, back, back to the eki bin. So it comes from the word obento. Obento is like a lunchbox. So an eki means station. So it's like the station lunchbox. And I mean, they're 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 a really big thing here. Each station has you know special obentos. So regionality in food is enough help to push um, Japanese cuisine even further into the international spotlight. So your seasonality and regionality. And if you think about Japan as a country, you've got a huge variety there because Okinawa Okinawa is subtropical. You have Hokkaido up in the north. Oh, which, minus 20 at times. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually going to be flying there on Sunday. Just oh, got out this morning. Take anyway, some warm clothes. <laughs> I will. And some, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, so you, you get like, you yeah, get like the, crab, yeah. you get snow, you know, the, the crabs up in the um, very cold yes. water up in Hokkaido down to Okinawa where, yeah, it is tropical and you get um, umibudo, like these sea grapes and all sorts of weird, strange things down there. Though. Although sadly you can't get a train to Okinawa. Oh, no, you can't get a train to Okinawa. So we're talking about Okay, okay, let's take the places you can get a train for because the Shinkansen, the bullet train, does connect um, Fukuoka, which is in the north of Kyushu, which is the southern like the southern, one of the main islands in the south, and up to Hokkaido, Hakodate, you can take the Shinkansen all the way up to there. But with Ekiben, it's a chance for regions to show off the kind of food that you can eat there. So you can, for example, if you go to Tokyo Station, there's a bento store called, I think, I believe, Matsuri, which actually means festival. And I mean, it can get really crowded, like a festival. And, it, <laughs> and you go around and you can just choose, you know, oh, today I'm going to eat the regional um, ekiben of this place. Or I'm going to go to here, so I'll eat it from this place. And um, again, early early on experiences with my mother in Japan when she came down for the south, we got a train, I believe, from, was it Nagasaki down to Kumamoto, I believe. And she's like, what you want me to buy a box of food out the refrigerator at the train station and eat with, it on with the cold train. rice with, with cold, cold rice. rice because you know they're not served hot they're served and, cold and if you do manage to find a microwave sometimes they have dessert included in the little compartment which it doesn't and, you, yeah, and then you microwave, microwave your dessert <laughs> <laughs> so except it will be cold and delicious yeah cold and rice is good everybody needs to know that again cold rice is good um curry pan and eki ben are things that very greatly impressed my mother on her first trip to japan she's since been four times which kind of gives you an idea of how much she loves coming here um travel for food is a big thing in japan places promote their their local food and when you go to any area you have to try the meibutsu mei meaning famous and butsu kind of things so like the famous thing the famous item of that area and everybody knows every famous thing you know if you ask them about a certain area people are all like oh yes 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 the famous food of that area is uh, or something you know and, oh you've got to eat this yeah you know you've got to you've got to eat this oh you've got to eat the soba noodles in this place oh you've got to eat this you've got to eat that oh you know and everybody everybody in all of japan knows all the famous food from each area 
So. Um, yeah, and you know there are innovations as well because uh, actually some areas are like, oh, we don't really have, have anything. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, what are we going to do? Because we've got to have one. <laughs> That's still some but no one's no one's going to gonna visit us if we don't come up with a with a food for them. Exactly, to... you've got to find one. <laughs> That's actually true because there is a an organization called the B1 Grand Prix, um, like uh, it's a competition. And it takes what's been informally known as BQ gurume, which they don't like to use that term because it means kind of B-level cuisine. They like to use cured, like cured or gurume or like local cuisine or something like that. Um, gotochi gurume, that's the one, local cuisine. And um, uh, some places, they're basically different organizations for town regeneration will go to whichever area is hosting the festival each year. And they're probably going to wear some pretty wacky weird costumes and kind of promote their food and everyone goes around trying and then there's a big voting at the end and you know the the winner gets the gold awards there and that area will experience a tourist boom for the next year or so mm-hmm. unfortunately with the word boom it tends to be a boom and then mm-hmm. doesn't it tend to continue yeah. so that and i believe that kind of strategy is sort of fading a bit because it's been more than 10 years and they've not had much success in like in sustaining it but basically a few areas did feel kind of okay we don't really have something so they invented <laughs> invented this kind of local cuisine for this kind of festival and it's caused a huge amount of controversy this is not the true local food this is the inv- <laughs> but, you know apparently parton was invented in scotland in scotland in the um, 1800s and that was also like a kind of cultural invention is what i've heard as well so you um there's a whole um a, a book i can't remember who wrote it in academia called the invention of tradition and Considering so many traditions are kind of rubbish, we might as well invent good ones, mightn't we? <laughs> That's right. And they might as well be about food. Is is there a particular yeah. food festival in Japan, maybe in Tokyo, maybe somewhere else, that you're especially fond of? There's food festivals like every week in Tokyo. <laughs> yeah, there's kind of, I mean, the Yuyogi Park is famous for hosting different international cuisines and different yeah. festivals. And then Hibiya Park also has like a ramen festival and they'll get ramen from all over the place or they get a, um, a nabe yeah. festival or they get a, you know. But It tends to be massive, massive queues. And yes, honest, massive queues. That's first... You're talking about avoiding queues? <laughs> Don't yeah. go to festivals. <laughs> yeah, in my first couple of years in Japan, I was like, I'm in Japan. I'm going to go to the ramen festival. And after you've queued for about an hour and a half and you've had like one mediocre bowl of ramen, it's kind of like, mm, yeah. I think I'll go to a really good store off peak time and yeah. have really good ramen. Yeah. And a short- so, yeah, food festivals, um, uh, there, there are many different kinds. And with, for example, festivals at shrines, they'll have street stalls that sell things like choco banana, yakitori, grilled chicken on sticks, or you'll have yakisoba, the yakisoba the fried noodles. Yeah. Um, but it's not really. It's not really great. Not usually. Yeah, a food festival. Yeah, you yeah. want to be going to a speciality store. It's all about small scale and specializing here in Japan. We're talking with Mari Wallace and Phoebe Amoroso from Culinary Backstreets in Tokyo. Let's talk sake because sake is kind of undergoing a revival in the United States lately. What do we need to know about sake? It's great. That's what you need to know. <laughs> okay. Hey, Bren, have a drink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, sake, considered Japan's national drink, but actually the industry has been in crisis for many, many years. Um, and as Mari just said, is experiencing a big bit of revival. So sake, oh goodness, I don't even know where to start. Let's just say that, um, peak consumption was in, um, 1973, I believe. And let's, you have to kind of think about Japan's sort of development history, so um, Japan was hit quite badly in the war, but then in the 1950s, you start to see this, um, the beginning of um, Japanese modernization, um, the kind of Japanese economic miracle, and you see this kind of very rapid um, development. And uh, although the Shoah era actually dates back to before the um, Second World War, when people talk about the sort of Showa period here in Japan with a sense of nostalgia, it's kind of that kind of 60s to 80s, I would say, period that people think back on. But during that time, you've got modernization, you've got large scale production. And so sake was a drink that was made um, on a large scale and incredibly cheaply. So you've got quantity over quality. 
in in, in summary. And you would go to a res- restaurant or bar, and it would just say on the menu, it would just say sake. The the brand wouldn't <laughs> yeah, the brand wouldn't never, be listed. Yeah. Listed, you'd just be like, okay, sake. So, um, what happens in the nineteen seventies? You've got people with greater disposable income, and you've got greater exports. Uh, no imports, sorry, imports of kind of uh, imports of other alcohol, and these are viewed as kind of exotic. So, just like um, Japanese food in the US or the UK or Europe is, oh wow, Japanese food, you know, it's kind of exotic, high end, right, right. amazing cuisine. You have the kind of treatment of Western food like that here in Japan, and that applied to alcohol. So, sake really, really declined as the kind of um, in terms of the alcohol being drunk in Japan, its percentage drastically declined. And you see a, there's so many sake breweries began to go out of business. And it was bus, bus, bus. Now, depending on the figures, throughout one between 1,200, 1,400 breweries um, left in Japan. I think if there were over 3,600 in its heyday, okay? And um, places, you know, still now you'll hear of a brewery going you know, closing its doors, you know, every couple of months or so. And then, so what happened? Well, I, I don't really know how to, how to put the dates on this. I'd say maybe the past 15 years, but don't take that as a kind of hard and fast um, number. You started to see people realizing that Japan's national drink is really not Japan's national drink. You know, breweries are closing. And then um, particularly um, sake tends to be made into the countryside areas. And as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, it's a very steeply aging population here in Japan um, and a very, very low birth rate. The population, there's a, there's a demographic crisis waiting to happen. Now, in rural areas, this is, um, this is exacerbated by, you know, young people. They didn't have job interviews uh, in A2s. Well, they didn't have interviews either. Yeah. They didn't have opportunities in the rural areas. So they will then move to the move to the cities. So you've not got people kind of wanting to take over these kind of businesses or move into that. However, in the past few years, we are seeing a revival in sake and along the idea of craft sake, the the sort of um, starting to you know prioritize quality over quantity, small batches. And interestingly, this has been um, intersecting with some young people who are moving back into moving back to their hometowns or are taking over and trying to do new exciting things a slight japan really really does lag lag behind other countries when it comes to entrepreneurship you're starting to see a shift in the past three or four years and on the startup scene and um i think in traditional crafts you can also see young people moving into these and i i speak more broadly than just sake. The way that sake was originally um, produced is you would have the president of the company who would manage it and it would be their family name and, you know, sort out the branding and everything like that. But the person brewing the sake was called a toji. That's the lead brewer. And they were actually kind of, they were a seasonal worker. You know, there's a Niigata um, to slightly sort of northwestern Japan, that area had a very, very famous guild or school of toji. And a lot of um, sake brewing uh, techniques or styles originated from Niigata, from that famous school. So um, they would basically come in the winter. They would brew the sake over the winter. They would lead lead the brewing and uh, I won't get into technical details. There would be a small team or, or a larger team, depending on how, you know, what, what style. And they would decide the kind of style, the taste, the direction. And the president would kind of then, bot, you know, oversee the management of it and sell it. So this was divided. So imagine you're running a company, but you're not really directly involved in the production or the taste. And what happened is, is these these toji were very old school, to put it to put it bluntly. They were out of touch with what do modern consumers want. And the Japanese diet has changed um, an incredible amount over the past few decades. You know, much more sort of Western influences, things changing. So if you're thinking about sake to match food as well, you know, you know, young people's tastes are just different. So young people are going back into sake breweries, and they are. To not only just taking over sort of the management role that maybe their parents um, held, but they are also actually learning to brew themselves, mm. giving them a much 
they're much a much tighter control over the taste, what kind of direction they're they're going in, but also being able to kind of explain the story and the flavors to their consumers and building up that much kind of sort of personal relationship that's kind of been quite necessary for the sort of marketing. Um, and oh, and there's gosh. such a there's such a variety in sake too, and I think that's one thing that people don't realize. Like I actually didn't. I came to Japan a long time ago, and I didn't drink a lot of sake in the beginning because I used to think that it was quite strong and it, it was kind of because as as Phoebe was explaining you know back then it was it was there was there was just sake that was all that was really available and can be yeah, very rough and it could be very rough and it was really... an old man's drink <laughs> and I used to just think oh my god sake is so strong whereas it's only actually like 15 16 percent alcohol but I mean I used to think oh it's like drinking I don't know it's drinking fire water you know like something like cha-cha from you know Georgia or something like that um and nowadays you get this incredible variety just as you get in wine, you know, and it, and it ranges from, you know, like, you know, if you say to people, you know, what sort of wine do you like? Well, people like, you know, Chardonnays or Sauvignon Blancs or Pinot Gris or Rosés or Reds, you know, and, and it goes through that whole spectrum. And the same thing with sake and there's such a wide spectrum within sake. So, you know, I've found that I, there is an awful lot of sake that I do like, um, but I've got a particular, I, I like a particular, you know, ever so slightly dry, but not too dry, definitely not on the sweet side. And I like, you know, particular, I, I've worked out now what I do like. And I think that that's um, very important to know that there's an incredible range of sake available and you just need to go out there and try it and find out what you particularly like, you know? I mean, on that point, there's been a huge, there's been a research into developing different yeasts for the yes. fermentation, yep. um, different rice strains that we're trying to, sake rice is different from table rice and I won't get too technical and geeky about that, but <laughs> each region is trying to breed the next best sake rice. Yeah. Every year they launch something and, you know, see how it goes. Um, but also, you know, we're Inter and interesting enough, just on the rice thing, I'll get, just um, I, I've been I've attended a few sake seminars from the sake um, association that's a, a sort of a producers association, and they were saying that the um, as as Phoebe said, like sake rice is a particular kind of rice that is is produced for making sake, not for a table rice, and they have people that produce it all around the country and then they all put it in together and then sake makers would, uh, you know, like say, well, I need X amount of rice and another one would say, I need X amount of rice and then they would give it all out to them. But a lot of places are now going, well, hey, we don't want to actually do this because we want to be more in control of our rice. And so some of them are starting to grow their own rice oh, in wow. their area. So like there's That's one down in Ebina yeah. that's um, this place down in Ebina and they grow their own rice. So they're making their own rice on their their fields and then they've got their their brewery there so they don't have to just like take whatever rice is given out by that central rice there have place. been shortages as well in bad, oh, yeah. year, bad years bad years bad where years. we don't have the good, good and they don't yeah, have the right good. kind of rice that they want to get uh, buy so I, I wouldn't say that is widespread but it certainly is a growing trend for sure that yeah, um, um some it's quite unusual i think to grow their own rice directly yeah. contracting is yes an directly increase. contracting um, yep. and we can see that actually in other areas within sort of like food uh, ecosystem yeah, <laughs> um <laughs> But in in terms of um, what's been really interesting is you've got um, a woman moving into the industry. Yes, female very... sake brewers. That's unusual. Yes, yes. And that's growing. And that finally, they, they were they were kind of banned from sake breweries before. I say banned, like, but there's loads of different. Uh, there's, uh, there's loads of different reasons as to why women were not involved in the process but um, let's put that um, story aside but women are now creating very very good sake um, and you've got different technologies so what's very um, what makes sake production really really complex is that you you need to create this kind of um, koji koji rice so you have to add this kind of Bacteria rice. Well, he rice calls it, but it's actually a, it's actually like a, a yeast. Yeah, it's a you yeast, have to grow yeah. the yeast, and we get super super technical. But that <laughs> that basically, you know, um, you need you need that for the fermentation process, which and the saccharification, the t conversion of 
um, starch to sugar happens in parallel to the fermentation, unlike beer. So people talk, talk about sake in terms of it being a rice wine, but actually the process is closer to beer, but it's different because you've got this kind of parallel process going on. Um, and you've got the traditionally making that kind of koji, you have to kind of go and check on the, the, the rice that's got this, um, sort of mold yeast growing on it and turn it round. You have to keep consistent temperature, raise up the temperature, work out the humidity and, you know, like the different monitoring, like really hard to monitor you, you know, every two or three hours you're checking on it through the night. I mean, it's, and now you've got people using modern technologies, things like IOT, you know, um, it's our internet of things. Um, so you were looking, <laughs> looking, looking at it like, what is IOT? Uh, sorry, I, I'm Phoebe Geek back in her book. Um, but, you know, you can start to monitor remotely via computers and, you know, different kind of equipment and technology. But then there's also been a, a, a maybe an, a, an interest in traditional methods in which nowadays um, lactic acid is added to sake to kind of um, speed up, speed up the, um, the process. But originally um, these kind of the, the, uh, they would not add that and they would let it proceed naturally. So that's like a kimoto or yamahai, these kind of processes that take twice as long. What happens if you that was you know done from the Edo period? So Edo period is like 1603 to 1868. Um, and if you use these old-fashioned methods, but with new technology or equipment, what kind of new flavors can you produce? And there are a lot of... Um, uh, there are a lot of uh, sake brewers who I think are exploring just the absolute potential, the avenues for creating different kinds of sake that just haven't been created before. And it's a very exciting time um, to be interested in sake. At least I'm kind of passionate about it. You talked about the wide variety of sakes that are available. Is there a place where we can go in Tokyo and we can experience this wide range, maybe a sake bar or something? Correct. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, yes. How long do you have? Because there's... Tokyo is full of, um, yes, yeah, so Mary just said um, Karand. Karand is, is an interesting place. You go in and you just pay like a flat fee, which, um, <laughs> you know, you, you can pay like, uh, depending on how long you want to be there. But if you just want to be there for the whole night, you can go in at around about like 5, 5.30 and you can stay till 11 o'clock at night and you pay about 30 US dollars or something around that. And you can bring your own snacks. And you bring your own snacks, which you go down to the departure <laughs> go and buy beforehand. And you bring your own snacks. Right. And they have about a hundred different uh, sakes in the refrigerator that you can just pour yourself and try. Oh my! And they're all um, categorized into different colors. So they've got a green, blue, yellow, red, which you know has the different sort of style. You know, like one sort of very clear, one sort of very rich, like that. And they, so they've all got a little color, little coding on them, so you can kind of get an idea which ones you start to like. Uh, until you reach about number ten, and by that stage, you probably just <laughs> think wow. yeah, that you like them all. <laughs> oh, Mary, I think you've got better stamina. Me, number ten, you're still working out which ones you like. <laughs> uh, but there's been a lot of innovations, so like fruit flavors, sparkling yes, yes, as well, because the they're trying nice. to attract. Um, Sake was, as I said before, viewed as an old man's drink. So, right, right. you know, trying to modern consumers, women as well, you know, sort of like sparklings, like less alcoholic ones. So Kiran's is one place. Um, there's also the, um, I actually, shockingly, have not actually been here, the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center. Well, that's where, in I, went to, that's where I went, we went to, to seminars, all the, yeah, right? done all the seminars there. That was um, really amazing. And they actually give you a bit of, they'll sit you down. Uh, the, the place is, is run by um, Shuso Imada, who is a very lovely man who uh, speaks excellent English because he went to university in America. Uh, he's the manager there. And he'll sit down with you and his staff will also sit down with you and it kind of explain through a lot about sake. And you can do testing there uh, for a really small amount of money and they've got also some wonderful videos showing the process of making sake um, it is it's great little the information center mm. um, you yeah, know I've rolled out of there many times <laughs> uh, the shocking thing I don't know why I've never got there although there's you some great should. standing bars in the area and yes there the other day but yeah. um, that's another story <laughs> um, but there is also a place um, in Daimon called um the Meishu Center, literally means famous sake center. Their staff are bilingual and um basically it's standing. It's only open until eight PM. I, I've been a few times, not recently, but it's absolutely great because they will have the labels 
with the kind of tasting profiles and different numbers all explained and different color codes you can also find uh-huh, like, like around yeah yeah to kind of find your way around easily yeah and you order three and you get a hundred yen discount but the staff will happily help you guide you around these kind of uh, refrigerators and just pick it's kind of small but it's a great place for getting a kind of quite sort of uh yeah getting acquainted with sake and talking to people who are prepared to like let you know you know like and that's oh, maybe same, recommend the same thing this. with the the, the shochu and sake information center and also Kurand. the staff are all really like really mm. helpful and they yeah they will help you to mm. kind of like find out what you what kind of sake you tend to like so i think for a lot of folks who are thinking of visiting japan the Biggest question is, what about the language barrier? Because I always feel like when I go to Western Europe with my limited uh, skills in language, I can get by with a little Italian, with a little French, with a little Spanish. But when we're going to Japan, it's a completely different story. How, how do you deal with Americans or Western Europeans coming there and who have to face the language barrier? And what do you tell them? I first came to Japan in 2009. I was 20 years old. I had a rucksack and I was supposed to find a lot of people who spoke English to interview for my graduation thesis because I didn't speak any Japanese. And I didn't have any problem in basically crossing the country and going around I'm not saying that everyone is going to speak English, but and it, compared to, I believe, Korea, I hate to say this, but yeah, Korea and um, Japan's English level is fairly low, I would say. Um, the people tend to be more reticent about speaking it. They can understand it. But basically, wherever you go, someone is going to understand some very, very basics. And basics. they're so sweet and they're so they're, kind and they'll go out of their you. way. Like I've, I've talked to a lot of people on the tour who have said to me, oh, they're so kind, they're so kind. You know, I asked this I asked this person for directions to go to this place, but they couldn't actually speak English to tell me how to get to the place. So they took me to the place and they took, you know, and they'll take you like 30 minutes somewhere to make sure that you get there, you know, and there can be a lot of kindness. There's a lot of kindness, you know, and, and I think that's the thing, like just, you know, they will, they will be kind and, you know, you can go into a restaurant and I've heard stories of people saying, you know, we went into this restaurant and nobody could speak English. And so there was this whole big kerfuffle where they got out a phone and then a guy from down the road who can speak English came down in his pajamas. Oh, you know? <laughs> oh it's really wonderful when this happens. Oh, they go, okay, let's call our one mate who's going to speak some English. Yeah, yeah. And they push them forward. Oh, yeah. You know, um, and you know what? That's that's so such an exciting thing to have happen. You know, we've had that happen all over the world. And... Now with Google Translate, it's almost like, well, you pull out your phone and you tap in a few things and that's fine too, but that takes away the charm of the guy coming in his pajamas at 11 o'clock at night. Exactly, exactly. Um, You know, sometimes I think people in Japan seem a little bit reticent to talk, talk to foreigners or engage. And I think it's more a kind of concern over not being able to there's there's a huge expectation to be able to respond to whoever you're communicating with, their needs or their wants. And there's kind of maybe a miss up. They're, they're going to be panicked so they won't be able to understand, not just la- like linguistically, but also culturally, what does the other person want? So they may seem a bit kind of reticent. But once you kind of move past that, you know, there's there's a huge way. There's so many ways of communicating without language. Without language, drawing pictures, doing gestures. And I tell you... A smile. Uh, uh, yeah. A smile. And if you go to a bar... On a Friday night, and there's a bunch of drunk businessmen. I tell you, they will talk to you. <laughs> you will make friends. You will make a lot of friends. <laughs> Put a bit of alcohol, and you you're gonna have a lot of Japanese friends. I tell you. <laughs> uh, that's how a lot of people learn Japanese, and my Japanese has improved greatly since going to sake bars. <laughs> so nice. Line up another one, bartender, in Japanese. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, and uh, it's amazing. You know, two sakes and my Japanese level increases exponentially. <laughs> Did you know? Mari Wallace, Phoebe Amoroso, it's been such fun talking to you guys. And I imagine that taking a tour with either one of you would be a blast as well. Tell folks how they can get in touch and book a tour in Tokyo with uh, either one of you. Oh, we'd love to have everybody come on our tours. Come on over. We'll give, we'll give you a bit of a blast. <laughs> and, <laughs> and good, good feet. Sake. And good feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so um, it's culinarybackstreets.com and you know, just go there and the, it shows you all the different locations that we have around the, the world and just click on to Tokyo and, yeah, book a tour. It'll be great. Sounds like so much fun. Phoebe Amoroso, Maury Wallace, thank you for being on Destination Eat Drink. We look forward to a trip to Tokyo and uh, meeting up with you on a tour at Culinary Backstreets. Oh, thank you for this opportunity. It was lots of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Kanpai or cheers. Yeah, cheers. Kanpai. <laughs> See, I told you they were a lot of fun. And the thing is, because of the time difference, it's like 14 hours between Japan and the East Coast of the United States. I was up early in the morning. For them, it was late at night, so they were all wired. You can kind of hear at the beginning there, I'm just sort of waking up. I just love the image of the guy in his pajamas showing up at 11 o'clock at night to translate. Well, uh, that's it for this week. Next week, we are back in the U.S. for a trip to Houston, complete with tacos and a visit to a beer can museum. What's more Texas than that? Don't forget to visit DestinationEatDrink.com. I've got dozens of foodie travel guides, including three new Italy travel guides for Palermo, Naples, and Turin. Plus, there's tons of blog posts about all kinds of fun foodie things. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Thank you, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.